Student rallies at the University of California at Berkeley over the past two months have become commonplace. But today's rally in front of Sproul Hall has taken on a different tone. Several thousand students have gathered for what has been billed as a victory celebration, a victory the students feel is assured as a result of yesterday's action by the Academic Senate. The first speaker, the leader of the free speech movement, Mario Savio. We're asking that there be no, no restrictions on the content of speech, save those provided by the courts. And that's, that's an enormous amount of freedom. And people can say things within, within that area of freedom which are not responsible. And now that's, you know, we've finally gotten into a position where we have to consider being responsible because, you know, now we have the freedom within which to be responsible. And I'd like to say, you know, at this time, I'm confident, I'm confident that the students and the faculty, University of California, will exercise their freedom with the same responsibility they've shown in winning their freedom. Hello there, my name's Adam Spring and this is a Remotely Interested podcast hosted at remotely-interested.com. So that audio clip was from the free speech movement and it gives you a little clue about our guest today. In this instance, the free speech movement was all about campus politics and the right for UC Berkeley students, University of California Berkeley students to have freedom of expression for political activities on campus, as well as more of an acknowledgement of their free speech and academic freedom rights as well. And that took place in 1964 to 1965. For our guest, it was part of a turning point as well as a signifier of a melting pot in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Now, Lee was the moderator of the Homebrew Computer Club. He was also the developer of the Osborne One, had worked with Paul Allen outside of Microsoft, and is now a fellow, as of 2016, of the Computer History Museum in San Francisco due to his influence on the technical and social environment of the early personal computing era. Anyway, this one's really interesting because it's, I would say, all about, at the least, the proto market of what became the personal computing market but really there's also another element to it that is kind of i think it's fair to almost describe it as the prehistory of silicon valley and i say that not only because uh you will learn more about that in part two so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna spoil it but i say that not not lightly because you know my background is in archaeology so when i band around these terms i do try to get them correct a lot of the stuff that went on before the bill gates and the steve jobs of this world is folklore within the Bay Area. And I think we get a lot of that coming out. And I think key themes that tie in with this one are those of conflict. In this case, the pre-existing conditions that led to a personal computing market forming, the communities that ended up working with the technology that became a computer, as well as communication. We talk about it a little bit in, well, we talk about it a lot, actually, in, in the podcast about the role of communication and lines of communication and how they they break down and it's it's very very interesting to listen to now in terms of how this episode came about really i was first introduced to lee back in the 90s without even realizing it back in the uk a channel called channel 4 brought out a documentary series called triumphs of the nerds which was in 1996 and that charted the the early history of Silicon Valley. Later on, John Markov came out with the excellent book, What the Dormouse Said, 
which explores the counterculture that led to the personal computing market. And then more recently, talking to you in 2017, Walter Isaacson had The Innovators, which gives a broader look. Anyway, in order to give this episode more context, shall we say, you know, because obviously I'm British, I'm, I'm talking to an American in this one, and there's a lot of social history here where I was like, oh, well, maybe I should explore this a little bit more because it may help when I'm giving the introduction. So in terms of the audio clips that I've embedded into this in order to give that that bigger picture feel and combining it with, you know, what was going on on the ground with Lee, there is John F. Kennedy from June 11th, 1963, giving the Civil Rights Address, in which the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was proposed. This one's interesting as well, because the address was also given in the backdrop of the Cold War. There's also Charlie Junkerman, um, which is taken from April 17, 2014, in Stanford University. He discusses the Freedom Summer of 1964 in historical context, and that was at a 50th anniversary event that was held at the Stanford campus in California. And then there is Edward Binns. Now, Edward Binns is an interesting one because basically you couldn't have a podcast related to communication and uh, community without talking a little bit about Marshall McLuhan, particularly when, you know, you're talking about the 1960s and 70s, which is the heyday. So the bit taken from Edward Binns is um, him as a narrator of This is Marshall McLuhan, the Medium is the Message documentary, which was released on March 19th, 1967. Now, in the context of our journey with Lee, If you wanted to break it down in uh, McLuhan's way of thinking, shall we say, you know, we've got the pre-existing conditions of the medium, you know, where information flow is percolating in politically fused post-war societies and are intermingling with the information and communication technologies that are evolving at great pace. Now, with Lee's story, this obviously includes microelectronics in general, the microchip and, of course, personal computer. And this one is followed by Doug Engelbart, the mother of all demos, which took place on December 9th, 1968, where for the first time the fundamental elements of what is perceived as uh, personal computing in the present day was demonstrated for the first time. And following on from him, as I mentioned earlier, Triumph of the Nerds, we have Mark Stevens, a.k.a. Robert X. Cringely, from April 14th, 1996, in the first episode and the little bit that we have from him is all about the chips inside the first personal computers and how the homebrew computer club started to bring them into context and help create a market and then the last of the clips that i include in this part of the interview is from steve wozniak and that comes from november 28th 2016 and he's talking with the president's institute about the development of the apple one and sharing his system architecture with the homebrew computer club uh, I'm an electronic design engineer, hardware designer. Um, I consider myself primarily an analog designer, and the digital sort of adds on to that. Uh, I also describe myself as a daydreamer and explainer, as the two talents I've been able to identify. And of course, that unfolds to a number of things. Um, I guess the question was, who am and not who was or where did I come from? We'll go into that later, I'm sure. Um, I've been involved in personal computers from before the beginning, from around 1973 or so. And I came to personal computers uh, through the first experiment in public access social media, computer media, handled social media which I was one of the founders of in 1972 or three. 
that all came about because I was um, in search of media that would facilitate the development and redevelopment of community. Uh, that was an outcome of my experience at Berkeley in 1964 with the free speech movement in which a relatively alienated and isolated student body became a community and, and uh, was able to prevail. Now, that's very, very shorthand. I've gone on from that point uh, to design some of the what, what could be called the uh, fundamental architecture of the personal computer. And we'll need to explain that because it's not agreed upon. Also, there's no, no prize awaiting someone who can prove that, so nobody bothers to uh, try to prove it. And uh, I was uh, in, I was the designer of the uh, meeting process of the Homebrew Computer Club. Uh, where many companies were originated, including Apple, and uh, which was a major, uh, uh, what's the right word, nexus point, I suppose, for uh, the personal computer in the industry in the Bay Area as it developed. Uh, so I uh, capped that off later by designing the first um, quote, portable, unquote, computer, which is now called a luggable computer because it weighed 23.5 pounds, 10 kilos. And um, that was the Osborne one, and it set the price point for portable computers for another decade. Although the company didn't survive that long, the company went bankrupt after three years. And since then, I've been a uh, more or less independent uh, designer, contract designer, although I spent eight years as a researcher at uh, Interval Research Corporation, which was Paul Allen's research company. Um, however, I'm, number one, constrained by a non-disclosure agreement to, quote, participate in any story about that, so I can't tell you very much about what I did there. And uh, number two, um, now you see if I've make this point. I'm going to have to be very elliptical here. Uh, the, uh, I can't point to any uh, notable achievements from, from that point of time. And recently, um, just this year, I've been uh, installed as a fellow of the Computer History Museum. Um, there have been people who are dead who have been in, in that position too, installed like Babbage and so forth. But um, but I'm not dead, fortunately, and I'm working to uh, try to uh, make it easier for young people who started in middle school years, as I did, uh, make it easier for them <clears throat> to learn the stuff that I eventually had to learn. A great change is at hand, and our task, our obligation, is to make that revolution, that change, peaceful and constructive for all. Those who do nothing are inviting shame as well as violence. Those who act boldly 
are recognizing right as well as reality. I want to pay tribute to those citizens north and south who've been working in their communities to make life better for all. They are acting not out of sense of legal duty, but out of a sense of human decency. Now, in Walter Isaacson's book, um, he mentions your your childhood and your parents and stuff like that. And I thought it was very interesting reading about that because looking at what you did later on and, you know, two most notable folk stories, I guess, would be Build Me a Police Radio uh, when you were at Berkeley with the free speech movement and also, you know, the full on the, the hill story from the Homebrew Computing Club. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more around that, about how your formative years, yeah, affected your later years, I guess. Yes, well, my parents were bohemians, which doesn't mean Czechoslovakian. It means that they were nonconformists of their era. And um, they were, um, in addition to what they had to do to to keep alive, they uh, participated in uh, what we now call civil rights uh, struggles and so forth and uh, political activity, anti-fascist activity. They were members of the Communist Party, which is really the only game in town when you wanted to do that sort of stuff with other people. And I was brought up with a lot of the uh, culture of that uh, particular movement, the folk music, uh, and also um, involved as I could be with their activity. They wound up in the early 1950s helping to organize a rather massive parliamentary-style community organization, uh, specifically around the issue of uh, racial integration. Uh, there was a white neighborhood was being, uh, the houses were being sold to black people and in, with the intention of creating uh, panic selling. This is known as blockbusting in the American parlance. And they were trying to prevent the, the neighborhood from declining uh, stopping liquor stores from coming in and uh, advocating a, a rezoning of the uh, of the area. Anyway, that's all rather technical. But there were uh, there was a, a junior block organization as well. So there's the kids had their own little organization, and we would go out and clean up the street on Saturdays and whitewash the trees and you know, pick up garbage, trash from the gutters. So I was involved in that sort of community uh, building as a kid, not really understanding what was all going on. Because this was was not the idea of the Communist Party, they got basically thrown out of the party for this, which I would consider a badge of honor. And my father went on to win a civic award. And uh, then uh, next year, they were uh, subject to the, the witch hunts, the uh, call before the Senate uh, security, internal security committee with the hopes of discrediting him before the members of the community. That did not work. And during that time, uh, the civil rights movement began in the South and spread to the North. Uh, And I was a participant. Um, I would go out on weekends and picket the Woolworth store, no matter who was the organization picketing. Uh, in solidarity with the sit-ins in the uh, South with the Student Nonviolent Co- Coordinating Committee. So it's it to me, uh, standing there with a picket sign was not a an outrageous or unusual idea. And I was reading about the San Francisco area and the beatniks, uh, the the Bohemian culture here, 
Uh, and it mentioned that there was a book and it mentioned that the University of California at Berkeley was a sort of center of, of uh, that kind of activity and drew a lot of support from there. And in my college applications, I uh, managed not to get any uh, financial support. So my first two choices, or the first two that accepted me, I couldn't go to. So I applied to Berkeley and was accepted. And in 1963, uh, I got on a train to go across the country and, uh, and I've been, I spent 29 years in Berkeley. I enrolled as a uh, freshman in uh, electrical engineering and computer sciences. EECS was the name of the cur curriculum. But I had been frightened away from computers. In high school, my brother, who's three years older, and now a uh, very famous uh, professor of uh, genetics, he founded a computer club in 1959. He was interested in software. And he would show me schematic diagrams from books published in the 1940s and said, can you make this work? Can you do build this? And I was in a position with him where I couldn't say no. So I said, I'll try. And I did try ultimately without much success. We had probably I did much better than I thought because I didn't go ask for any mentoring or assistance from people who knew and was doing some rather foolish things. I would, uh, take a wire and flick it against a metal contact to create what I thought was a pulse, you know, a single clean up, down, and back again, uh, when that is probably one of the best ways to, to create a random train of pulses. So our, we were giving this stuff, the equipment, random inputs, and it gave us random outputs, which meant it worked about 50% of the time. And I came to the conclusion that this digital business was far too touchy, uh, too sensitive, one little missed pulse in your whole day was ruined. So I decided that I was not going to have anything to do with digital electronics and uh, concentrated on analog audio and so forth, which is a fun thing to do when you're in high school. In college, uh, I didn't even bother to investigate to see if there was any digital or computer curriculum. And uh, I was just there to uh, become an electronic engineer, uh, sharpen my craft as well as I could get my degree. But also I was at Berkeley and I was there because of political activity as well as the, the, the beatnik social scene, which I never did get involved with. And I was uh, a seasoned uh, protester. So I joined in when uh, the, I think it was the Madame New, uh, I think it's the wife of, of uh, Ngo Dinh Diem, who was the uh, installed leader of Vietnam. Nobody had heard of Vietnam then, but a teacher, a substitute teacher in high school had lectured about it. And it turned out everything he'd said turned out to be true. Uh, so Nodin Nhu, uh, his wife came to visit San Francisco and we put mounted a protest uh, picket line in front of the hotel, the first anti-Vietnam War protest and Vietnam War was just beginning. That's the sort of thing I did uh, in addition to my classes. In 1964, uh, more than a thousand college-aged, primarily white northerners joined thousands of mostly black southern civil rights workers in Mississippi and Louisiana in a massive drive to register African-American voters. Over the 10 weeks of the project, the volunteers were victims of random shootings, more than 1,600 arrests, 80 serious beatings, four deaths. 
37 churches and 30 homes and businesses were bombed or burned. It's well known that the violence was perpetrated by white racist vigilantes and terror groups, often organized by the Ku Klux Klan and in collusion with local law enforcement. In spite of the violence... And then uh, in the next year, 1964, that was Freedom Summer. Many students from Berkeley and other colleges went to the South and they came back like shell shock veterans with stories of what they had experienced. Uh, and at that time, there was civil rights activity developing in the uh, local area, in the Oakland uh, East Bay area. One of the local uh, power barons, the uh, publisher, the uh, local newspaper put pressure on the university to stop these students from coming and picketing his uh, place because that's one of the, the protests was going on and the university complied and uh, right at the tail end of freedom summer when people came back to campus they issued an edict saying uh, we've discovered that these this area where you've been setting up your tables to do your advocacy and so forth and recruit uh, for uh, protests that that area actually belongs to the university, and you can't use it for that stuff. You couldn't. Just, you could not hand out a leaflet on campus. By the way, that was already in the rules, and so they they basically tried to clamp down on student activity just at this point when it was on the upswing. The result was, in effect, an explosion, uh, and resulted in a three-day sit-in around a in, in, trapping a police car on campus that had come to take away a, uh, a former student who had been arrested at a table. And uh, that became the free speech movement. And I was not there. I was on a work-study uh, period and very confused about what was happening. I was only reading the Los Angeles papers, and they were, said it was a riot. You know those students. Well, I came back to campus, which is a whole completely different story, uh, as to why I came back then in the middle of October and discovered that this protest was going on. The campus was in an uproar and I had to make a decision whether I was going to be a safe little engineer and not get involved in anything that would uh, cloud my record in the future. And I had to, it took about a week and I made that decision to say, no, that's, I'm not, this is the right thing to do. I'm getting involved with this. Now I had an, in effect exchanged my job, this was with NASA uh, for a job on campus, not voluntarily, by the way. NASA basically told me to go away. My, their security investigation didn't uh, check out very well, and uh, it would have embarrassed a bureaucrat if I'd stayed. So I was on campus and uh, no classes, and that was about an ideal situation to, to observe and participate in this. This is where the, the police radio incident comes in which was a life changer for me. I hang, was hanging around the uh, headquarters trying to find what kind of technological thing would be of use in this particular uh, effort. Uh, the, somebody came running in with an erroneous report that the campus was surrounded by police. If one knows the Berkeley campus, one knows that it's huge and you couldn't surround it with anything. Um, whereupon, um, it appeared to me 
subjectively it appeared to me that everybody in the room turned to me and in unison said, quick, make us a police radio. Now, it was really just one person saying that, but everyone was looking at me because suddenly I was the man of the hour, the man of the moment. And uh, so I stammered and said, you don't understand. Uh, it, you, it, you can't do it that fast. It takes time because you know, I, I knew what they meant. If somebody was re reciting what they'd learned from their parents about how in 1939 you could have easily adjusted a uh, regular radio receiver to receive police calls. But since then, you know, the, the, the frequencies had changed, the modulation had changed and so forth. I knew all this, but I couldn't explain it. So they just said, never mind about that. Make us a police radio. Well, at that instant, I realized I'd made a big mistake by hanging around and waiting for orders, waiting for somebody to say, why, why don't you make it something like this? Because uh, they didn't understand much about the technology at all. And it, it came down to something absurd like this. What I realized in that instant was uh, my place had to be out ahead of the request. What I had to do was put in the work to understand what might be useful and go ahead and build the elements of that that I could do so that when the next time this happened, I could say, well, you can't have that, but here's what you can have. And for that, I'm pretty grateful, actually, because very early on, it started me on a path of exploration. Uh, and that is what I've been doing since. And I've been exploring for that, whatever the technology was going to be that would facilitate the development and sustenance of uh, community. The electric age is changing you. It is changing your family. It is changing your neighborhood. It's changing your education. It's changing your job. When are you going to do? It's changing your government. It's changing your relationship to others. These little circuits are making our world go. The electric age is having a profound effect on us. We are in a period of fantastic change that's coming about at fantastic speed. Your life is changing dramatically, and you are numb to it. What was happening uh, in the free speech movement was that the student political organizations across the political spectrum, it included the libertarians and the, uh, and the conservatives, they united to uh, form a group to fight this uh, attack from the university because those rules applied to everybody. And uh, they set up a structure which was very deeply rooted in the student body. There was a kind of a, uh, it was called the executive committee, but it didn't do anything executive. Um, but it was, it consisted of members from all sorts of student groups and organizations, living groups, even independents. And it formed a, a, an information channel in both directions. Those people would be discussing uh, what was going on with their constituencies. And then we bring that back into the uh, meeting together and they were able to uh, report on what students were thinking and saying and so forth. And they were able to carry back 
information about what this free speech movement as an organization was trying to do and how students could help. Uh, I became involved in helping run the uh, the printing operation, the mimeograph, uh, because I knew that technology pretty well. And we would send like 5,000 leaflets up to campus every morning. And there were people there who would show up to, to hand them out illegally. And it was a very well, seemingly well-organized system, but it was organized sort of from within. And nobody there knew much about organization per se. At the center of this was the phone room. It was a room in an apartment that which became the, uh, the, the, the apartment became the central office with a table and two phones and a very large number of pieces of paper tacked to the wall. What was going on in that room was certainly not the hierarchical dissemination of orders and uh, collection of information and so forth. People would call in with news. They would call in with questions. They would call in with offers of uh, assistance in various forms with suggestions and well, these would be written on paper and put up on the wall and people would also call in with uh, needs and the people at the phone room would match up the needs with whatever has been posted on the wall uh, so it was an information exchange and it worked very well I consider that phone room to be the genesis of social media. And the upshot of the whole thing was that after a two-month struggle with the administration, negotiations, uh, sit-ins when it broke down and so forth, or not sit-ins so much as just violation of the rules by asserting our constitutional rights, the principle, we, we, our, our slogan was first and 14th or fight. Those are amendments to the Constitution. Um, it culminated in a sit-in in, in uh, December 2nd. First, we went in on the 1st and got arrested on the 2nd in the administration building. Uh, and as I say, about 800 people got arrested. I was one of them, not a leader of any kind, but I was there. And this whole story can be found on, our, on the website of the Free Speech Movement Archives, which I founded in 1998, fsm-a.org. But basically, the administration lost a vote in the academic Senate by a large margin and backed away. I guess they'd been given a fig leaf. And the rules basically went the way we wanted them, that the Constitution and the civil authorities were the only uh, authorities to control uh, the content of speech on campus. Now, I consider this a revolution. I have three criteria for a revolution. One is it's uh, participated in by a large number of people. Number two, it overthrows an existing order, which in this case was the order of in loco parentis, the legal concept that the university could act in place of the parent. At that time, the age of majority was still 21, so most students were minors. And uh, number three, the revolutions have unexpected and wide-ranging consequences. That certainly happened because the free speech movement was the birth of the counterculture. And I remember very well the uh, the school break right after that between the, I guess, the fall and the winter semesters of uh, at the University of California. All sorts of people started doing all sorts of things that were they would never have done. I, for instance, signed up for a political science course. And I wrote a little essay that somebody published uh, in a it was in a booklet that was so badly done that the cover was blank 
and my essay was in the center, so that looked like it was all about that I was the author of the whole thing. A student magazine, totally unauthorized and and uh, kind of challenging, let's say, the, the political and uh, uh, social mores of the day. That got started. Everybody was breaking loose with some kind of creativity. And by breaking loose, uh, this included some unknown number. I would estimate it to be in, in around 5,000 students who dropped out at that point and found their way over to the Haight-Ashbury to form a community there that, where they could live the way they wanted to. So I uh, could see that the, the media, there's, there needed to be some kind of media that f- facilitated this. You couldn't have a crisis going on all the time. That wasn't going to work. The user system is what's beyond that. Given all that, what do I do with it? What kind of conventions for leaving messages and for using the content analyzer and for organizing our files? And How do we use the links and the keyword thing? User system there, and this is something that is kind of a new element in systems research that we're trying to establish well, so that we can integrate that kind of user system work where the people's methods, the concepts they use, the procedures, the skills, all are developed in coordination with the kinds of tools that they have. Within our Bailiwick, then, we also have an explicit activity we call management system work, where we are taking some project money and developing our own set of management tools to help us manage these 17 people and all these diverse activities in this complex system. And so we are beginning to develop some of those, and we'd be happy to talk to you about those during open house. And our forthcoming involvement is this ARPA computer network, the experimental network that's going to come into being in its first form in about a year and end up sometime later with some 20 experimental computers in a network. And they hope to be able to transmit across the country with bandwidths of something like 20 kilobits per second, delay times of less than a tenth of a second, which would be enough so that I could be running a system in Cambridge over the network and getting the same kind of response on a CRT. And it may be that people there, yeah, the next time we have a conference in Boston, I'll try this from there. One of our intellectuals, uh, Marvin Garson, right afterwards, said what happened was that the barriers to communication among people went down because of the crisis. And I think he was right. So from there, I went through the 1960s trying to find out what that medium was, would be. And I tried uh, working in the underground press and uh, some other attempts. And I began to uh, investigate the uh, intentional communities, the communes. And, and they were springing up in Berkeley, so I didn't have to travel very far. And I ran into some preprint kind of Xerox sheets that someone was doing, a fellow named Michael Rossman. And I recognized the name Rossman, Mike Rossman, because he had been one of the big names in the free speech movement. And here he was writing about how you could use telephones to facilitate community development. So I sought him out and talked with him and uh, continued to sort of absorb some of his ideas. He wrote, put them in a book that was called On Learning and Social Change, and it was not much of a bestseller. But uh, when I spoke at his uh, memorial service in 2008, the book was there, and I looked through it, and I realized this is what I've been trying to do since then. And 
by 1970, I realized that that the te- technology I've been searching for was a network of computers. And I recall straightening up and saying, but where am I going to get a computer? By the next year, that question was answered. Some people had already been pursuing that issue and had obtained the commitment for effectively the donation of a time-sharing mainframe. And I could help by helping set it up. That was called Resource One. It was in San Francisco in a warehouse community, that is to say, an empty, vacant industrial building that had been rented, not quite squatted, but close to it. But with with the assistance of the landlord, we paid rent and uh, built whatever we wanted to build in terms of walls and so forth. And 150 people lived there and more people worked there during the day. And this is the place where the computer was to be installed. So after I graduated, and then that's another path that I haven't discussed, I dropped out for four years, worked as an engineer for four years, which I consider my graduate school, and then dropped back into school and and finished my degree. And after that, I went to live and work in that building, uh, basically bringing up that computer. And that was the computer where I knew we wanted to do some kind of directory, some kind of live uh, telephone directory, because we could never fit all of the communication that people needed to have through the computer. But we could handle the information about who they should contact by phone. And uh, that became community memory. Uh, That was, we opened up the first terminal on that in public in 1973, in August 8th, in Berkeley. And as I say, we opened the door to cyberspace and found that it was hospitable territory. These are the people who invented the microprocessor, Intel. Their microprocessors today power 85% of the world's computers. Intel's microprocessors kept getting more powerful. They soon had enough horsepower to run a whole computer. Only Intel didn't appreciate the brilliance of their own product, seeing it as useful mainly for calculators or traffic lights. Intel had all the elements necessary to invent the PC business, but they just didn't get it. Lucky for us, someone did. So one of the things I was going to ask is you're on record as saying that the organizational structure of the Homebrew uh, Computing Society is one of your greatest achievements. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, One of the things that uh, the Community Memory Project uh, would do, now here I'm talking about the people, Uh, we would create what we called instant directories. So today that there was a, a conference, a, a place where people were going to come together and talk about one particular thing, we would offer to show up, or we would just show up, uh, and hand out uh, papers that were uh, ruled uh, into uh, to blocks just as big as, a little bit smaller than a, a standard three by five inch index card. Tell people, write anything on this paper, in this section of the paper, that you would like everybody to see about what you, you know, who you are, what you're doing, and so forth. And then we would collect those papers. Uh, we would Xerox them in the same, so that everybody could get a copy of all the papers and then hand them back out. Uh, this took a fair amount of effort, but uh, it meant that 
people came away from that conference with the name and contact information for everybody who was there, plus their commentary on why what they wanted to talk about. This was the kind of this is social media in its own right. And it was a one time social medium. Uh, the Homebrew Computer Club. Some people think I found it. I did not. Uh, I was informed of its uh, existence and its first meeting. And I went to the first meeting where 30 people stood around in a garage and they looked at the first Altair 8800 uh, personal computer or microcomputer. Uh, and we went around the room and told what uh, we knew about it what we wanted to do with it. And I'm not sure if I was the one who suggested that. I think the fellow who organized the meeting, Fred Moore, um, was a very interesting character in his own right, but uh, he was basically a non-technical person. He, he wanted to create some kind of organization that he hoped would do something. He was a radical pacifist, actually. And I suggested that we write down, he, he took notes as to what people were saying and that I suggested that we duplicate those notes and pass and mail them out to everybody as a result of the meeting. That became the Homebrew Club newsletter. So that was uh, you know, the first batch of 30 people and it included a number of names that would become significant later on, including Steve Wozniak. Which is the uh, Apple One, which you singly handled, developed in 1976. It was actually the computer that launched Apple, right? That was a computer that, I, I, I wouldn't say launched Apple. Steve Jobs didn't know that I had built it and designed it. I created it to show off to a computer club of Stanford professors and Berkeley professors who spoke of the social good when we had our own computers. We would educate and we would communicate and we, the geek would, would be important. And I built it and I gave away my design for free to everyone at the club. I passed it out on paper to everyone at the club. They had a design. I said, go build your own for $300, a useful computer that can solve problems you have at work. And um, Steve Jobs came along and saw it and he saw the interest in it. And don't believe the movie that shows him taking me to a computer club. I was a hero at the club, showing my computer every two weeks. <laughs> but I hit, what it was was the Apple One, this Apple One was a formula one board full of chips, it was a small board actually then, it's full of chips hand-wired by myself and it could do the full job of a computer where you could type in programs and get answers from them and it had enough memory. A lot of decisions in that were very different than what everyone else was trying. So, um, so it was the formula. Here's what a personal computer should be. It was given away for free. Everyone looking over my shoulders knew in, to start their companies, and this is how we're going to build computers. And that's what led to even other early personal computers. Uh, by the fourth meeting of the club, it had grown so much uh, that it was certainly not suitable for the way it was being run by Gordon French. It was his Gordon French owned the house with the garage and of course the club immediately outgrew the garage so in the third meeting he was attempting to lecture on computer science and instruct people because he was a programmer and half the people were listening to that the other half of the attendees were outside in the uh, lobby meeting each other and i said this is what needs to happen we need to bring this 
process of meeting each other into the meeting. And strangely enough, at the next meeting of the club, the fourth one, Gordon uh, announced that he was leaving town. He had a contract at the Social Security Administration in Baltimore and be out of town for six months. And so we needed someone new to, re- to lead the meeting. One of the people I was talking with put my name in nomination, and I knew that I wanted to try some stuff, so I, I don't think anyone else was nominated. I became the uh, what I called the Toastmaster. The club didn't have a formal structure at that point, and whatever formal structure it developed later was strictly for the purpose of maintaining a legal entity with a nonprofit status and so forth. It had nothing to do with the operation of the of the club. Uh, the 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 structure I wanted to try was like the instant directory, with a uh, what I call a random access session. In other words, so people would sit still and one at a time be called upon stand up, and for a short amount of time I came up with 90 seconds, but it depended on what was being said. They would introduce themselves, tell what they wanted to talk with other people about, or maybe ask a question for everybody, and then sit down. They would stand up so they could be identified. And after a certain amount of time of that, then we were going to break into just an undifferentiated group and people would go seek out the people they had identified and uh, talk with them. My idea that we was that we would go through say three cycles of this whole thing that would lead to sort of convergence but we never got past the first cycle and that's fine. That's what we did from there on. The mapping M-A-P-P-I-N-G session and the random access session. This was a deceptively simple format and it worked excellently. For a while, there was a time when we had speakers for the first half hour. And there was times when those speakers did not show up, but we knew the topic of what they wanted to talk about. So I would say we were going to have a talk about this topic. Uh, Who here knows something about it? And about three hands would go up. And I would call on them in turn just to recite what they thought they knew about it. And that would cause other hands to go up. And Bit by bit, we would put together as good a lecture as anyone could have delivered from the audience because, in part, it attracted a lot of people who had some information, let's put it that way. It kind of, it it sounds like an analogy of like with the Beatles going across Liverpool finding a chord. You know, I don't know whether you ever heard that story at all, but like when they were growing up and when they were creating the band, they would actually hear about somebody having a chord and they would, like I said, go across Liverpool and find that chord, learn to play it and then go on to the next person. Kind of sounds similar to that. In this case, we sort of collected people and ideas and so forth. But yes, I mean, the idea, the the good ideas arise in discourse, in exchange. Everybody's got a sort of holographic piece of the answer. Nobody's got the whole answer, and nobody's qualified to put it all together. We would, uh, we, we made sure not to let structure and personality get in the way of that. What I did from the front of the auditorium was specifically to stay out of the content of the information, but I had to use whatever stagecraft and humor I could uh, develop to deflect the discussion from becoming about the content. You know, if somebody says, well, that's not true and so forth, I had to stop that because they had to have that discussion in person during random access. I could see the lights going out all over the audience when the, when the uh, 
discussion got specific like that. So I was there to manage the uh, dissemination of what I called secondary information. That's like who you want to talk to and how to reach them rather than primary information, which is what you all wanted to talk about. People would come up to me, they still do today, and say, you know, I was there. And the, they always start by saying, you don't know who I am, but I was in the Homebook Computer Club meetings. And, and many of them will say, and you were saying some really important things. Well, the first few times I said, well, I didn't say anything. That wasn't my job. I tried to prevent people from saying stuff that would uh, cause people to tune out. They don't like that. What I learned was they want a blessing. And so I said, yes, we were saying this and that and this and that. All those all the, did some very important things. And they like that. So people's perception was that the good information was coming from me. It wasn't. It was coming from them. And we kept this going for 11 years, although it was probably about three years too long. And by that time, user groups had developed. They certainly developed fast enough. Within the first two years, there were user groups. But a lot of people were able to hear a lot of things, meet a lot of other people, test ideas on each other, and uh, move the industry forward for what Ted Nelson at the time called those unforgettable next two years. And then after that, uh, when there were products and there were user groups for the products, uh, there were reasons to concentrate one's uh, attention elsewhere, it stopped being the, the uh, fertile seedbed that it was originally. It had a lifespan. Lee is not only a man of many stories, he's also a man of much wisdom. And similar to uh, other hardware engineers that I've met in the Bay Area of, of his generation, you get the feeling that you're going to the learning tree, particularly with somebody that was there before it all happened. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things to conclude on and to think about uh, in between the first part and the second part of Remotely Interested Podcast 17 is this idea of how a language rules or understanding of what would become personal computing actually formed because i think this relationship between the real world or the physical world and the digital world is something that we constantly have to keep hold of particularly in a world of hype cycle and everything in the world of technology having to be new and i think certainly this part of lee's story really gives a clear impression of this box that did stuff or this handout device that now does stuff wasn't always there in the way that you knew it it came from a very real human place and maybe not the place that you would assume it would come from um, not necessarily the scientific objectivity that maybe we give it at times. Anyway, I will leave you to it for now. The next one's good. And I'm not just saying that it's, yeah, it was a pleasure to do. So I hope you can tune in for that one as well. And most of all, I hope you enjoyed this one. Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and I'm here to tell you how you can stay connected with the Remotely Interested podcast. It's released on SoundCloud and also is available on YouTube. You'll also find it at the remotely-interested.com website. But there's more as well. If you want to, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Stitcher. You can also find us on Google Plus as well, as well as Google Play. And if you have any other suggestions, why not send me a tweet at, at that interested? <laughs>